You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 13, and then Exodus 12, 18 through 20. I want to preach to you this morning a sermon I've simply entitled, The Sequel. The Sequel. I'm going to ask my wife to come up on stage just for a second, and I hope to paint this image for you. She's going to grab me by, she doesn't know what she's doing, by the way. I mean, she does know what she's doing, but not why she's up here. I don't want to get myself in trouble before we even begin this thing. I'm going to ask you to grab me by the arm and hold on and don't let me go. All right? Very good. All right? So here's what I want you to think about real quick. Okay, i got to get to my notes, though. She's stronger than I am. <laughs> According to God's Word, all of us, me, myself, and I, and then including you, have sinned against God. And what is sin? Sin is lawlessness. It is trespassing the boundary of God's Word. It is breaking God's Word. So if you think of it this way, if there was a line drawn in the sand between myself and Mandy, and Mandy represented sin in just this instance... And I cross that line, okay? I am a sinner. But here's the other part that you need to know. Is that sin is not just the breaking of a principle of God's word. Sin is also a power or an influence over our life that's there to destroy us. It has a hold of us. In fact, all we can do until we meet Jesus Christ, is do nothing but drag me that way, is to cross this line. Do you understand that? And so God has given us his law. He has given us the lines to point out, not that we're just trespassing the line, but ultimately it points us to what? We have sin. And sin has a hold of us. And sin has an influence over us. And what are we going to do to break the shackles and the bondage of sin? How can we do that? You can take a seat. I may call you back up later. <laughs> Isn't she beautiful, everybody? All right. As I mentioned, Jesus Christ came to save us and to set us free from sin. In today's passage, and we mentioned it last week when we were in communion, Jesus is described as the Passover. Anybody remember? He's the Passover lamb. And if you remember what happened to the Passover lamb, the lamb was sacrificed in substitution of the firstborn sons of Israel that when God was going to execute judgment and wrath on all of the firstborns, male, I mean, excuse me, uh, animals and uh, Israelites and Egyptians, it didn't matter who was in the land in Exodus chapter 12, that unless this lamb was sacrificed in substitution of the firstborn and the blood was applied to the door, God would not uh, pass over that house, but instead the destroyer would come in and cause that firstborn to die. 
And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 explains it to us. How does that apply to us? Is that Jesus is our Passover lamb. Every single one of us has sinned against God and we've all come under God's judgment. But God loves us and He has provided a sacrifice. He has provided a substitute for us, namely His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. And this is what we celebrate this time of year, that 2,000 years ago, the, the, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God came to the earth, lived a sinless life, something that you and I can never do. And instead of holding that eternal life away from us, He gave up His own life. He who was righteous became unrighteous so that we who were unrighteous, not right with God, could be made right. And He died on the cross for our sins. He paid the price. He was the sacrifice and the substitute. But here's what I want to press in on you this morning. Just like we talked about the Passover last week and how Jesus is our Passover lamb, please know there is more to the Passover festival than just remembering the lamb. There's another part to the festival, and I'm going to call it the sequel. What happens right after Passover? Read Exodus 12, verses 18 through 20 with me. Now listen to this. This is called the Festival of Unleavened Bread. The Festival of Unleavened Bread. It says this in verse 18. You are to eat unleavened bread in the first month from the evening of the 14th day of the month until the evening of the 21st day. Now, help me, let me help you remember what happened last week. On the first month of the 10th day, the families of Israel were to go select the lamb that would be the sacrificial substitute for the firstborn. That happened on day 10. Anybody remember what happened or what day they would sacrifice that lamb on? The 14th. Now, here's what's interesting. Notice this. What day does the Feast of Unleavened Bread begin? But that evening, got this? So earlier in the day, they sacrificed the lamb. They applied the blood to the doorpost. And then another festival begins. A sequel begins. Something immediately happens. Listen to the rest of this. Verse 19. Yeast must not be found in your houses for seven days. Generally in Scripture, seven is the number of completion. It represents the entirety. Don't let a little speck of yeast or leaven be found any place in the house for seven days. If anyone eats something leavened, that person, whether a resident alien, whether he's an immigrant or a native of the land, must be cut off from the community of Israel. He's to be kicked out. And in verse 20, do not eat anything leavened Eat unleavened bread in all your homes. Now, why is God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, so obsessed with leavened and unleavened bread? Now, remember this. In the Passover meal, God told them that when they went to go make their bread further, for their journey out of Egypt into the promised land of Canaan, that they weren't to use leaven. And the reason was this, is that leaven, when you put it in dough, when you bake it, what happens? It causes it to... Rise. Well, guess what? In order for it to rise, it takes precious time. And God was saying, I'm going to execute judgment and salvation so quickly. I want you to put your traveling clothes on and don't you wait around for that bread to rise. 
I want you to make sure there's not a speck of leaven in your homes. Because here's the point. Every piece of leaven reminds me of Egypt. Every piece of leaven is another moment set captive in Egypt. And I want you to put Egypt behind you. Now here's why this is important, because this festival of unleavened bread is continued to be remembered among the Jews and Israelites this day. They, don't just, uh, they just don't celebrate the initial separation or the release from captivity from Egypt, but the entirety, the setting free of their lives to never return to Egypt. I don't want to go back. Now what does that mean for us? If Passover symbolizes salvation from slavery to sin, the sequel or the Feast of Unleavened Bread symbolizes to us what happens after our Passover lamb, our post-Egyptian experience. It It symbolizes to us what happens after we get saved. Now... Jesus saved us to set us free from sin. But here's what I want you to think about. And we know this. This is a truth. This is found in Scripture, and it's found in your experience. Imagine this way. If Mandy again had a hold of my arm, when Jesus died for my sin and rose from the grave and offered me forgiveness and to be set free, here's what happens. When I despise my sin, I repent of my sin and trust Christ as my Savior, sin lets their hands off of me. It breaks the chains. But here's the the thing we have to note. Sin still is an ongoing reality in the life of the believer. Sin's not yet dead completely. That day is coming. We talk about the consummation or the completion of the kingdom, the glorification. When Jesus comes, we will be like him. But sin is still present. It's there. We're We're not held captive to it. We're free from it. But it's over there. We've put distance between us and sin. And the question becomes, what do we do with the distance between us now? What is our relationship toward sin? We're going to struggle with sin. We're going to battle sin. We're going to fight sin. What does God want from us? What should be our relationship toward sin? In 1 Corinthians, make sure you're there. Let's go ahead and turn there. Paul's going to explain to us what the sequel or the Feast of Unleavened Bread means to us spiritually in our relationship towards sin. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, please listen to this. A professing Christian, someone who says, I believe in Jesus, I've repented of my sins, and I've trust Christ as my Savior. This person is living in unrepentant sin. He's allowing sin to have hold of his life. He's being held captive by it. And listen to the Apostle Paul's robust rebuke of this man's understanding of why God set him free from sin. Listen to what it says in verses 1 through 5. This is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. The kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are arrogant. 
shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, when we, when we say the day of the Lord, what's that in reference to? You may know. The judgment day. Okay? Here's the first thing that I want you to see in this, and just write it down, and I'll unpack it as we go, is that our first kind of response in our relationship towards sin, now that we've been set free from sin, and when sin reoccurs in our life, number one, sin should sadden us. Sin should sadden us. Now, the details of this sexual affair are not clear. But please notice, it was abhorrent even to which group? Who found this deplorable? Gentiles. Now, for those who don't know, these are non-Jews. These are those outside of God's believing community outside of God's people. So unbelievers, so to speak, are looking at what the church believers are tolerating in their congregation, and they're sitting there saying, we don't even stand for this kind of relationship. So either way, this was a dastardly look for the church, and it's more than a PR problem. This was a sin problem that had penetrated the church. And instead... Of, of remorse for this, the Corinthian church, they've become what? Arrogant, puffed up, filled with pride. Here's the whole idea. They thought, we are so gracious, we are so forgiving that we'll let this professing Christian live in rampant, unrebu unrebuked, unrepentant sin. Look how loving and gracious we are. And Paul goes, you don't know a thing about grace. If you understood the price that was paid to set you free, you wouldn't let this happen in your church. And instead, he tells them sin should move them to grief. And that grief is the same term of a family member who grieves at the loss or the death of another family member. Ladies and gentlemen, when we see sin in our own lives, and in the lives of our other fellow brothers and sisters in this room, when it runs rampant, without rebuke, without repentance, sadly, sometimes we'll sit there and we kind of don't talk about it or we don't address it because we do it in the name of grace or forgiveness and you've misunderstood grace and forgiveness. That Jesus has forgiven us, he has set us free, but not to stay in Egypt, to walk out of there and live and become a different people. And so when we see people travel back to Egypt, travel back into bondage of sin, it should move us to tears just like we lost a loved one. It should sadden us. Every living church must take this action against sin when a professing, professing Christian remains unrepentant. Now please catch what I want you to see. I want you to say here. If you're a professing Christian and you're putting up that fight against sin, we're here to help you. There is no condemnation. 
The time when accountability comes into your life is when a brother or sister sees that you've been overtaken in sin, you've been deceived, you claim Christ, and yet you continue to habitually and frequently do it. That's when we are obligated as a family of God to call one another out privately and in gentleness and respect. Now, here's what's so amazing. This had gone so rampant. Again, it was now being reported among even the Gentiles. The lost community had heard about this sexual affair that was going on inside of this church. And so Paul, as the apostle, jumps in and says, I'm going to tell you what God wants done. And listen to some of the things that happened. The act that had to be carried out was that the local church had to gather together. They came together in Jesus' name. And the Apostle Paul was going to preside over that gathering spiritually. He couldn't be physically present. He says, but spiritually, I am present with you. Now, here's what's interesting. If you go back and study Jesus' instructions on church discipline in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, remember it says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. So when the church, whether it was just a handful of people and the Apostle Paul's spiritual presence had come together, who else showed up on the day of accountability for this member of the church? King Jesus. It says, in the power of Jesus, what do they do? They excommunicated. They removed this person from their fellowship. They excluded them. And in fact, it said they delivered them over to Satan. Now, real quick, you say, what what does that mean? That's kind of terrifying. Scholars debate, was he being delivered over to Satan because he had lost his salvation? Was he being delivered over to Satan in hopes that maybe Satan would inflict some physical ill to him in hopes that he would come to repentance? Was he being delivered over to Satan so that he could follow the desires of his flesh and then in, in, in running into all of that kind of come to a place of remorse? They're all, so to speak, they're all, I guess, options. But here's what I want you to think about. And I think this is more of what Paul has in mind, at least the heart behind it. If you've ever had a family member or a friend that you've prayed this for, I think this is the the concept of the idea of what's going on, is when we pray for a lost person, we say, God, whatever you have to do to them in order to save them, do it. It's like the prodigal son. It's, it's, the, it's the, the son that leaves the father. The father doesn't want him to leave, but allows him to go. He wastes all of his life, right? And eventually, he comes to sit and sleep with the pigs. But what happens in that moment? He comes to his senses. And what he's saying is this. We're going to exclude them from our fellowship in hopes that they will come to their senses and be saddened over their sin. And please understand this. The point of this whole text is so that one day he might be restored and be saved. Restoration is what is in mind. Church, I don't want you to know this. Here's what you say. Why do we sell this, Josh? Because are, am I, are you after me today? No, I want you to understand God's grace teaches us to deny ungodliness, not to cooperate with it. And when sin happens in our lives, we should be saddened by it. When sin runs rampant in our church, we should be saddened by it, and it moves us to action. Not we think it, Sometimes we think it's kinder just to kind of turn a blind eye and neglect it. And that's the worst thing you can do for yourself or for your brother or sister who you claim that you love. Deal with your own sin. Deal with your own sin. Hey, but then also, as a loving brother and sister, tell of the sins and dangers of others privately with your concern. 
Here's the second thing that we see, though, and this helps understand the idea a little bit better. Look at verses 6 through 8. He says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new, unclean batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with the old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The idea here about leaven is not that the leaven represents the person. The leaven in this verse is not about the professing Christian who refuses to repent. Leaven here is symbolic of sin. It's the actual power. Think of it like Mandy. Leaven, okay, in this way. Leaven's representing that picture. Okay, now we're disconnected from it. Notice when we experience the Passover spiritually, Christ has come into our life. We've been set free from sin. But sin's over there. We're a new batch. But what can, what can sin do? It can creep. See, this is the unique thing about yeast or leaven, is leaven is a living, breathing organism. All right, and I had to test this because I'm not a baker, y'all. I'm not a baker. So I literally went, we were out uh, in Gainesville the other night, and I went to the store, and I'm like, I'm going to pick up some of this yeast, I'm going to figure out how powerful it really is. All right? So I got some, and they had in the back of the jar, they're like, hey, to find out if this yeast is active, take a, a, a... a quarter of a cup of warm water, drop in two teaspoons and a teaspoon of sugar. It's like, fine, I'll do it. I'll try it. And it said, just give it 10 minutes. So for those who got their Bible app, you can see how well my experiment went because it about exploded out of that cup. (laughs) Oh, no. That's why I didn't do it here this morning. (laughs) Did you notice what happened? Hey, just two teaspoons of yeast and what went from a, a quarter of a cup went almost overflowing out of a very tall cup. What are we supposed to do? Write this down. Sin should be strangled. Sin should be strangled and substituted. See, it's a living organism. Hey, you're set free from it. All right? You're no longer captive to it. You can walk away from it. But I don't, the day's not come where sin's been put to death yet. It's coming. Jesus is coming again. And when, hey, when we're in the new heavens and the new earth, there's no more sin, there's no more death, and there's no more crying, there's no more anxiety, there's none of those things. But it's still a, a reality in the life of the believer. It stands over here. We're not held captive to it anymore. But it's still living. So what are we commanded to do in our Feast of Unleavened Bread for the rest of our lives? Write down these two references, Romans 6, 10 through 13. Romans 6, 10 through 13. Listen to what Paul says. It says, for the death Jesus died, he died once and for all time. He died one time and it took care of everything. But the life he lives, he lives to God. 
So right now, he is interceding on your behalf at the right hand of God the Father. Now he's going to apply that to us because by faith, when we've been wedded to Christ, so to speak, we've died with him and been raised with him to new life. And so listen to this. So you too, Christians, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And listen to this command. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't let it rain. You know what sin wants to do? It wants to reign. It wants to have control. Even after God set the people of Israel free from Egypt and Pharaoh said, go, what happened as soon as they left? You remember the story? They ran after them. And I think it's the same thing in our lives. We've been set free. We're free to go. Yeah, you're free to go. And what does sin do? Runs right after us. It wants to reign. And notice what the verse goes on today. He says, And do not offer any of your parts of it to sin as a weapon for unrighteousness, but as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. So here's what you could do. Sin stands over there. It's alive. It has an influence, but you're no longer captive to it. And you could cross the line, embrace it, and let your body be used as a weapon of unrighteousness. But listen to the other part. Here's what's different. Listen to the sequel. Listen to what it says in Romans 8, 12 through 13. Romans 8, 12 through 13. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh Because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. A person who's embraced sin, they've not been set free from it. But notice what happens. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Here's where we are under law, not under law, but under grace. See, the picture I painted with you earlier with Mandy, that's the picture of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. Under the New Covenant, we have something else that's also very better. See, Jesus not only set us free from sin, but he put the Holy Spirit into our lives who fights against the flesh. And what we have is this choice. He's saying this, instead of running into sin, run into the Spirit. Lead him. Let him follow. Let him lead you. Follow him. Let him produce the fruit. Go and embrace the Spirit. And you'll put to death the things of the flesh. It can't live. It can't live as long as you live according to the Spirit. That's what we didn't have before. But God is now on the inside working with us. And we've got to cooperate. Sweep out the old leaven. You're a new batch. Notice the things he's trying to do, what the new leaven is like. It's full of sincerity and truth. Sincerity, you might want to write this down. Sincerity is when the outside matches the inside. Sincerity is when the outside matches the inside. God does not want hypocritical Christians. He doesn't want Christians, people who say they're Christians, and then they go out and live lives contrary to his word. That's why he he set you free so you can live in obedience to him. You can enjoy him and his commands. So he wants the outside to match the inside, but here's what truth is. You ready? Truth is when the inside matches matches God's word. Truth is when the inside matches God's word. So here's what happens. We feast on the word of God and he changes us on the inside and we live it out and then our inside becomes 
outside. That's unleavened bread. It's pure. It's holy. It all lines up with the Word of God. And I want you to know this. The Spirit of God can help you do that. He's living on the inside. Think of it this way. In the Old Testament, the Feast of Unleavened Bread lasted for seven days. In the New Testament or the New Covenant, the Feast of Unleavened Bread lasts our entire lives. Clean out the old leaven. Don't let it have any part. Don't give it, don't give it an inch. It'll spread like wildfire. Strangle it and substitute it with the things of the Spirit, with sincerity and truth. The third and final thing, let's read verses 9 through 13. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. But notice this, he says, you got confused. He said, I did not mean the immoral people of this world or unbelievers or the greedy, the swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. <laughs> he says, that's not what I'm after. He says, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, so notice that, a professing Christian, and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, verbally abusive, a drunkard, or swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Do you see how that works? He goes, look, hey, well, let me finish the thought. Don't you judge those who are inside. He's like, start with your own household. You worry about yourself and you worry about your church because notice what happens. He says, God judges outsiders. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. The wrath of God is revealed against the whole world. Everybody knows they're suppressing it, that they will stand before God as judge. But look at this, last part, remove the evil person from among you. So this is not remove an unbeliever from among you. Unbelievers are welcome. They need the gospel. Right? But the minute that they become a Christian, you understand this, they repent of their sins and trust Christ as their Savior. They should be saddened over sin. They should do their best to strangle it by the power of the Holy Spirit, substitute it with all the things of the Spirit. And if a person remains unrepentant in sin, number three, sin should be separated from the saints. Number three, sin should be separated from the saints. Can I get on a little bit of a hobby horse real quick? I won't be on it long. Sadly, we as evangelicals have become too worried about reforming the lost society outside this church, and we forgot to start looking at what's going on inside our own houses, hearts, and churches. We get so upset, and I'm with generous respect, we get upset with all the politics, right? We get set up, upset, and sometimes rightfully so, with all the injustices that go on outside of here. But I hate to say this, we point too many fingers on the outside, and we got to look at ourselves. And I think some of the reason why the church, why, why the world wants to not hear the prophetic voice of the church calling them back is because they look inside and go, how are you any better than us? What's reported among the Gentiles? You're doing I want you to see here, this kind of accountability, please do not go out of here going, we should judge people. Oh, that's not what we're saying. This kind of accountability only applies to members of the church. It is not our role to replace King Jesus as judge. But I want you to think about this. True accountability 
Listen, because this is where it will go wrong if you don't hear me out when I say this. Accountability, or this type of judgment, seeks the best means, not the most public, not on the world wide web or where everybody can hear you, but seeks the best means to bring back a professing brother or sister who is self-deceived as to his or her spiritual condition and to save him or her. Do you see that? We're going to seek the best means possible to confront that person so that they see the truth. Notice, not to shame them, but to save them. That's what we want. And if that's not your intention, if your intention is vindictive, if your intention is to be holier than thou or show somebody how much better you are, then you don't have any part in this. You're not mature enough. That's what a real, genuine Christian will do. And let me encourage you with this. Let me test you with this. When you come to church, do you come? Because here's the difference between coming to a building and coming to be a part of the family of God. Have you come to Mount Carmel for mutual encouragement and accountability? Notice this. Where you're going to open up your lives to other people to encourage them and to open up your lives to say, Hey, brother. Hey, sister. Tell me of my sins and dangers. I need that accountability. But here's what some, this is what we've been too, hey, we've lowered our standards for people when it comes to church. Instead, here's what we've opted for, entertainment and affirmation. Did I enjoy this and did I walk away feeling good? Because let me tell you, you will, I've been in services, I've walked out extremely happy. That's a part of the scriptures, encouragement, exhortation. But another part of the scripture is rebuke and correct. It's going to take both. And if we're faithful to the word of God, you're going to be encouraged. You are. But you'll also be held accountable. And please understand this. There's mutuality in it. I need you doing it. You need me doing it. You don't need. The last thing you need, and this is what's happening rampant, is to walk into another service, another church service, to sit down with no intention to ever engage with the people of God, going, what can this church do for me? Go home. Go home. If you want to be a part of the family of God, and the family of God is like any other family, it's a mess. If you want to bring your mess and say, help me with my mess, and I'll help you with your mess, welcome to the family. Do you see me? We've got to call it like we see it. Who, who has to be excluded? I want to run through this list real quick. If you claim to know Christ, and number one, if you're sexually immortal, those are, these are those who maintain, maintain beliefs about sexuality, pornography addictions, and sexual behaviors that are contrary to God's word. Now, does that mean if you slip up and you do it one time, you should be excluded? That's not what I'm talking about. I said maintain. Maintaining it. There are two. Number two, greedy or, and swindlers. Those whose love for money, they're run by a love for money. And swindlers are those who will defraud others or steal to get it. If that does not ping your conscience at all, mm, I question your salvation. Third, the idolater. This is the person who replaces God with anything or anyone 
as the object of supreme affection, satisfaction, and allegiance. Guys, and please understand, are we going to ever struggle with these things? Yes, we are. But when we notice them, that we've, we take part in them, what do we do? We're saddened by it, we confess it, and we strangle it, and we substitute. Right? We get away from it. This fourth one, the verbally abusive, those are those who frequently berate others with condescending or inappropriate language. They can't control their mouths. And then there's the drunkard who is frequently intoxicated. He's saying if these professing Christians keep this up, you can't even eat, eat a supper or a meal with them. Don't go eat with them after church. Don't go do that. We cannot keep unrepentant lifestyles in our church. You say, so what do we do? Because it does, like you read 1 Corinthians 5, and if you read it rightly, the tone is somber. A holy hush probably rushed over the crowd when it was read. But can I encourage you? Can I at least lift you up, walk, you, walk out of here with, with, a, with your head held high? Look at what it says in verse 7 one more time. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. So what are we to do? <laughs> We're just all going to point out each other's faults and not get any better? Mm, no, you misunderstood me if that's what you thought. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he says, Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch. And notice what it says. As indeed you are. Please understand this. Please understand this. You're positionally holy in Christ. That's who you are. So what? Write this down. Become all you are in Christ. Do not underestimate what Christ can do in you. Become all you are in Christ. Don't settle for a little bit of leaven. Don't settle for it. You get everything that the Spirit can produce. You get the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faith, the gentleness, and the self-control. Get it all. Eat it all up. Let it take over. And here's what happens. Because indeed we are new in Christ and we separate ourselves from that leaven and sin. We grieve over sin. We kill sin. We substitute it with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Let's separate from sin as best we can and cling to the holiness and the purity and the beauty that is found in Jesus Christ. That's what we want. And here's, here's my proposition to you. I believe that the sequel to Passover, unleavened bread, or in our case, the sequel to salvation, which is sanctification, is even better than the first. I think it's even better than the first because why? Not only have we just now been set free or been justified by faith from God's eyes, we're beginning to experience the freedom itself. Did you hear me? Could you imagine actually tasting, actually walking out and see I am changing. God is changing me, my marriage, my views, how I handle my money, how I look at people, why I give, why I don't give. He's changing all of it. And that's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's the sequel. And so I'm encouraging today, walk in the Spirit, leave out the leaven. And become all you are in Christ. I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. 
Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.